Hey, everybody. Welcome to Inside Situation, a bi-weekly podcast where we share with you some of the conversations we're having inside the agency with our coworkers, our partners, and our clients. I'm Peter Ujicic, head of technology for Situation. Uh, and this week, uh, we're doing things a little differently. I'm flying solo, and I'm recording this after the conversation you're about to hear. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Uh, I'm sitting down with Lisa Cicchini, our Vice President of New Media and Insights, and it's a great conversation. Uh, just a reminder, if you're listening to this and you would like to submit questions for our all-question-based inside situation, please send those questions to podcast at situation.nyc, and we will make those a part of a future episode. In the meantime, enjoy this Q&A with Lisa, and we'll see you soon. So Lisa, you're in the day-to-day -day position of telling stories with data. Uh, and over time, data is just becoming more and more prevalent from lots and lots of different sources. How are, what are some of the things that you're noticing as the volume increases of what we can see via data? Yeah, we certainly have access to more and more data all the time. Um, it used to be for a display campaign, let's say you had impressions, you had clicks, you click through rate. Um, as time went on, hopefully we have some sort of conversion based metric, but now we're much more into a world of viewable impressions and much more behaviors, um, associated with that view that we might not have had, um, a while ago. So it's really about now sorting through all those metrics and determining what the most important metrics are. I certainly think viewability is the biggest mover in the display space um, because it used, we used to just look at all impressions created equal and certainly there's a significant number of impressions that never come into the viewable space on desktop or mobile or tablet. But now that we have viewable and it's becoming a much more accepted metric across um, ad servers for, for sure, but certainly even publishers getting on board with allowing us to buy based on viewable impressions um, it's certainly taking display media, I think, to, to the next level, which is important because as video emerges, as social emerges, as native advertising emerges, display needs to keep up um, and the way it can keep up. Because right now, of course, you can purchase it at great scale for low cost, but it needs to be a valuable impression and worthwhile of the purchasing or else it was going to fall behind all of these other more emerging platforms where people are spending more of their digital dollars. And, and even though, you know, display may be more accountable because we can tell if something's viewable or above the fold, yet I know when you spoke at our Google event this year, you said that attribution uh, was not an exact science and that our ability to necessarily guarantee that that impression uh, is, is always being counted uh, is actually making it through the funnel between SSL and secure browsing and different things that are coming on board around privacy. Has, have you seen that really play out uh, as you thought it would that, you know, on one hand, the promise of being able to track everything is greater than a billboard in Times Square. You just don't know how many people walked by it. But on the other hand, things are changing on the landscape that are making it harder to really gauge what those numbers are. Has that played out? Yes. Um, attribution certainly is, is, has been the challenge that I suspected it might be this year. And I think a lot of that is because of the emergence and the continued emergence of people's reliance on mobile as a, as a primary 
device that they're using, it's not just the second screen, it's becoming the primary screen. And we've seen several of our clients' websites at this point now tip over where they're seeing their most traffic on mobile, then desktop, then tablet. So that shift um, has become even more cross-device is really the thing that I think makes attribution modeling the most challenging because there are certain platforms like Google via Gmail or Facebook where you can track attribution cross-device because you're logged into something. But there are many challenges to being able to track attribution across device, and that's that's who we are as a society now. So um, I do think there are a lot of challenges with attribution, and that's why as much as I'm the last person to discount data, I love data, I do realize the limitations specifically when you're looking at attribution modeling because of cross-device. Um, and the other thing is, as, as digital marketers, we're still living in this reliance of being completely cookie-based. We're completely reliant on cookies for all of our tracking. And that's obviously a challenge cross-device. It's certainly a challenge with people who are deleting their cookies and are concerned about privacy issues. Um, so I think we'll continue to see that to be a challenge. And I'm really, it's really going to be fascinating to see who comes forward and figures out how to kind of step in and save the day before it becomes even more fragmented than it already is. Right. In addition to cross-device, you touched on privacy concerns. I mean, over the last year, uh, you know, there have been so many high-profile examples of either companies that weren't responsible with users' data or the government looking at all of our data. And I think one of the things that we're seeing a lot more is a conversation about things like ad blockers, fire, HTML firewalls, things that, you know, not only are blocking the, the ads on the page, but are also really silencing all the things that are going on in the background that people maybe thought were going on. Kind of, They kind of knew that ads were showing up on multiple pages. But I, I think the, the average consumer has kind of opened their eyes to just how much they're being tracked. And I think there's a backlash. I think people are really hypersensitive about the kinds of things that are being done with their data. Uh, Do you think that that is going to be as big a factor as some of the other things you mentioned, like mobile device and, or do you see the ad networks and the people that we partner with? Are they talking about that? Are they taking that seriously? That, that idea that there has to be a greater transparency with exactly what we're doing with people's data to make them feel like they're not being spied on. So when it comes to you being on a website and having transparency about what that website is capturing, um, Europe moved first in that space. And now if you go to any site that's um, like a a co.uk based site, there is a very clear disclaimer, yes, um, about what they're collecting versus here, you know, yes, we have privacy policies and that kind of thing, but they're buried and nobody goes to those pages. So we have not, and we as in the United States, have not gone to that place um, as much so as as Europe. They, they really took the first step in being a lot more transparent. But yes, I agree is is not, even though it's somewhat unrelated, but the hacking and things like that, when that right. happens, yes, it certainly raises some eyebrows and some questions about you know, what exactly do you know about me and that kind of thing. Right. Do, you, do you think that the, the messages that you see on European websites, do you really think that they are being transparent? You know, a lot of the ones that I see say, we use cookies to improve your experience. 
if I asked my mom what that meant, she would have no idea. She, right. She'd think she was getting cookies. In it the sounds mail. like a nice thing. Yeah, it sounds delightful. And and I think there is a difference between aggregated anonymous data about behavior and an aggregated data that's going after you or that's going after me. And do you think if we did a better job of explaining, you know, in order to, you know, generally we collect this data on our audience as a whole and we may, when we recognize trends or recognize you again, we don't know you, but we recognize that you've been here and we're going to say, we think you might be interested in this because this is what you were looking at before. Do you think if there was a greater transparency rather than just saying we're making it better, trust us, do you think that would help people like calm people their their fears about being spied on? It's not you know it's not like the NSA listening to their phone calls. It's it's different. Yeah, I think people just naturally go to the bad place and they just think, oh, you know, you're all in my business and they're you're going to know things about me and they think it's personally identifiable, personally identifiable, um, and that sort of thing. And I think a if you were to write this very lovely explanation about what exactly you're doing. Nobody's going to read it. Um, And I I, I think if, I wish people understood, I mean, because there's there's pluses and minuses to tracking, and that's the thing that people don't think about. They just think it's all bad. Like, for example, I like the fact that when I go to Amazon, it's recommending things to me based on my previous purchases. That's really helpful, particularly from, you know, I have a Kindle, and particularly from the fact that it knows books that I've looked at, I mean, not even necessarily that I've purchased, but just books that I've browsed and that sort of thing. They can make recommendations based on that information. So I I like that. And I think most people probably do like that. Um, So there are pluses and minuses. And there's just the chances are that you're not going to have it every way you want it. You're not going to have the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff. And, you know, the world's going to revolve around me and it's all going to be perfect and la da That's just not the way the world works. Yeah. And, and I think that's, I, I like to try to see both sides of the, the argument. You know, I know, I've known people in the past that are completely anti-ad who turn on ad blockers on their browser. They don't want to see anything. They think that it's their right on the internet to be free. And a lot of times I'll get into an argument and say, but it's not free. You know, somebody has to build that stuff. Gmail is not free. Google's not putting that out there for the, for the good of society. Uh, you know, they, they're doing it so that they can get data and then they can market that data and they can create an ad network. It's not altruistic. Amazon's the same way. It might be great that my Kindle and my um, uh, Audible account are all synced up so that a book that I'm listening to or reading, you know, picks up. That's amazing technology. But they're doing that so that next time I buy a book, I'll buy it from them. Um, I, I do, do you think that people have a full understanding of you know, the commerce factor of the, you know, the, the, the millionaires in Silicon Valley are millionaires for a reason. And it's because they're collecting data, not because anybody's paying for anything anymore. You know, the model of even paying for AOL, you know, you got the CDs and the discs back in the 90s, you pay your $20 a month. But now, you know, the, the concept, I think, for most people is that it's just all free. And what, what do you think about that? Right. I, I, I think probably people just don't think about it. Like, most people don't think about, oh, how does this make money? And how, you know, you don't really necessarily think about the deeper parts of all these smaller aspects of your day. Um, and a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of sites, you know, if, actually, I think Facebook's kind of a good example because when you, for people who are early adopters on Facebook, there were no ads on Facebook. It was just the platform. And it wasn't until they started. They became bigger. They initially made a deal with, I believe, MSN, and there were display ads like traditional 720 by 90s, 160 by 600s, 
on Facebook until they built their own ad platform and it, and it evolved. But I think certainly there are people who remember the days when there weren't, there wasn't any advertising on Facebook and that was fine. And it was Mark Zuckerberg and like three of his buddies or whatever it was running the platform. Subsidized so by their, their college internet and they could you know, had the computer lab and all that stuff. Exactly. But now that it's a, you know, a, a publicly traded company and it's, you know, employs who knows how many folks it needs to have income. So, okay, how is it going to get income? Is it going to charge people in order to use Facebook? That's option one. Or option B, is it going to be fully funded through advertising? And, I'm, and you know, there are other options, of course, with sponsorships and things like that. But let's just talk about those two things. I think there would be a greater outcry from folks if all of a sudden Facebook costs you $20 a month to use. Right. Um, I mean, so I think when you put that. it against yeah. the alternative, people are much more, oh, okay, well, at least I can ignore the ads and I'm still getting my content for free. Because you mentioned, you know, the internet should be free. And for the most part, the internet is free. There, there are certainly several websites that have paywalls. Um, so, you know, like a New York Times, for example, you have a subscription or Wall Street Journal. And so you are paying for the content. And some some of these platforms have decided to go the route of partly funded through advertising, partly funded through subscribers or consumers paying for the content. But the majority are living in the world of I'm going to get my funding through advertising. And I mean, I haven't certainly polled anybody, but I would imagine, you know, if you were the type of person who goes to, you know, let's say 10 sites regularly and you go to people.com in the morning and then you go to CNN and then you go to New York Times and you go to your local news site um, and then you check your fantasy baseball scores and let's say you've gone to 10 sites now and you're, if you had to pay a subscription to each of those, it's going to be incredibly costly really fast. Um, Well, and by the same token, I I think I I love that example of the 10 sites because I think we all have those 10 sites that we go to all the time. And I think the argument made by the platform creators is that if you use an ad block every day when you come to that, you're stealing from me because I am a resource that you come to every day. So I have two options. I can either ask you not to do that and say, come on, ads support what you get and I have writers and, and editorial people that I have to pay, uh, or you know I can put in a paywall. And clearly, I think the Times has found a way to make it work. Wall Street Journal; those are examples of paywalls that are working because you know, Lord knows, you get so many solicitations from them to buy different combinations of how to do that. They've made it very flexible, and they also have huge investments to be on every platform and every new phone that comes out. Uh, but I, I think that you know the, there is an argument to be made that. You can't have it both ways. You can't expect it to be free and then expect those things to be there every day so you can check your fantasy football scores. Uh, And to expect the quality of the content to stay at the same level when there's no financial situation packing it up so that the content can stay at that high quality level. Well, and I I think it's interesting. We were talking before we started recording about uh, the Google contributor experiment where, you know, Google absolutely wants to put ads. They are an ad network, but the... The idea behind contributor is they're asking people to pay $5 up front to actually strip the ads out and it's kind of replaced with an artistic grid pattern. And that way, those those people that are paying the Google Display Network are still getting credit for those ads, but the people aren't being harassed or, uh, you know, uh, bothered by those ads or distracted by those ads. And, uh, you know, I think they're they're seeing if they can have it both ways. They're seeing if, if, you know, if you make a commitment to me up front that you're going to support this work, 
you know, we'll, we'll tone down what you're seeing. Do you think there's a future for that? What, what's your take on it? I have no idea. I mean, I, 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 you know, television has been around since the forties and they've never not had, uh, of course there's PBS and you oh, know, there's plenty of ads on PBS. I watch the PBS news <laughs> hour every night. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, television has been around since the forties and they completely revolve around advertising and people just accept it. Like, I don't, I don't think anybody expects advertising to go away. I don't think people complain about it. And yes, there's, you know, now that there's DVR, you can skip advertising, but certainly when you're watching any kind of real time content, like you most likely don't DVR the news or DVR the Super Bowl, that kind of thing, you're going to see tons and tons of ads. And that's just, it's so accepted. And I don't know if it's because that platform has been around for 75 years and that's why people aren't and they've never known it any other way right and maybe that's why or it's less obtruse i, I don't well, know why I, I think it's, it's so in- fascinating that, that you don't hear like people don't get super grumpy about the ads in their magazines or the ads on the radio like they it's like they accept that yes at the end of my 10 song pod on the radio i know that there's going to be some ads for i don't know why digital at least it seems to me maybe it's because i'm sensitive because i'm in the digital space but I, i've never understood why it's so much more of a frustration with people, it seems like, in digital than it is so in these other mediums that have been that way since they've always known them that way. Well, it, it's a couple of interesting points. I'm glad you brought up television. I I have a Netflix subscription. Um, I love that there are no ads on Netflix, nothing I ever watch. I tried Hulu a few times, and the thing that killed me about Hulu were, were all the ads. And it wasn't that it had ads. It's that I thought I think that they were implemented so badly I would watch a, a Parks and Rec season on Hulu and I would get the same ad every, you know, 15 minutes and until I wanted to blow my brains out because I was just like, I get it. Just show me any other ad. I'll watch the ad, but I don't want to see this same advertisement over and over again. So I think that there are just really poor ways to do it. And I would even say, uh, you know, mobile advertising, I think is terrible. I, I, you know, whatever about desktop advertising, I think a lot of people zone them out. But when I'm looking at my phone, and I'm, you know, checking my email in the morning and browsing to different news sites. You know, when those ads pop up, why, why are they so horrendous? Why hasn't anybody found a way to make a mobile ad that just is not terrible? I mean, that's my opinion. But I mean, looks terrible? Or- looks terrible, functions terrible. You know, it just doesn't work a lot of the times. It just obscures the content to the point where I have to close the page. I would happily read the ad. If, if it was just, okay, I have to read it for five seconds and go away. But I think it's just because the space is still really, really new, which we forget. Um, yeah. I mean, when did the iPhone come out? 2010, maybe? No, it was before that. I think it was eight, maybe. But but to your your point of this, it is it, hasn't it been is a very that new medium. Long. Yeah. Um, so I, I think it's still it's still just in that learning curve phase. And it would be, yes, it would be great if it was better. <laughs> I absolutely agree. Um, I mean, certainly there, I mean, think about how many websites are out there that still aren't mobile optimized. It's right. just amazing. So I think it's just, I think it's just the newness of the space. Um, the, the, the platform just isn't there yet. And what, speaking about technology advancing, you know, we've, we've seen a lot of news lately about kind of companies and browsers calling for the death of the flash banner ad. Uh, you know, and I, I think those when people think of annoying banner ads, they often think of a flash ad as the biggest offender. Now, I'm I'm one to say that you can certainly make them interesting and tasteful and, and look nice. But we've all had to, like, hit the monkey that pops up. And, you know, I think when people think of the worst 
uh, offenders in terms of ads. They think of the ones that blink or flash or get in front of your stuff, and they kind of lump everything together just because somebody didn't know how to use the tool correctly. Or conversely, because some ad networks and, and web publishers aren't scrutinizing that content. You know, there's lots of stories in the news about people getting malware from a flash ad that was accepted by an ad network. Why did why wasn't it the responsibility of that ad network to make sure that that wasn't delivering something malicious? Is it just because there's the volume is so great? Well, I think the challenge, you know, on, on the publisher side or the the network that you're buying with or the DSP or whatever. So, yes, they do approve the ads, but as the advertiser, I can swap out the creative because you're making the call to my ad serving software. So unless you're checking it constantly to make sure, you know, I would imagine that the checks and balances aren't necessarily there. So I can upload a perfectly legit creative, submit it to the ad network that we're working with or the publisher. They check it out. Everything works okay. The campaign goes live. And then I can go in and change that creative and they won't even necessarily know. So unless they have the technology in place to trigger a re-review, pause it until it's re-reviewed, um, and I'm not familiar enough with the publisher side to know how prevalent that software is, I have lots of control. I could be running a campaign on Playbill and the ads, I could swap out ads that say Playbill stinks and they wouldn't know. I don't believe until they saw it themselves. Right. Um, so it, it's a very, the, once you have that deal and you've supplied those tags, the advertiser, we have a lot of control. Yeah. Um, which I guess is kind of scary to it, a publisher. Well, I think it's played, there have been definitely some stories in the news about, you know, people whose computers have been hijacked and, and crypto lock or, uh, you know, and, and basically ransomware through ad networks. And I think that's one of the leading charges you know, I think the advertiser's response has been, been to say, especially Amazon, I know, let the charge, we're just not letting flash on our network because it is a portal through which we have so little control that uh, it could deliver something and anyone could change it. You know, it could be benign at first, you know, and then 24 hours later, they could deliver a payload that's malicious. And then at 24 hours from then, those people could be gone because so we don't even have any way to find them and the, 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 the damage has been done. So I think we are seeing a move towards technologies that are going to be more pro-consumer, but it's so hard to, you know, all anyone needs to do to justify their use of an ad blocker and not look at any ads is say, well, I heard that somebody got a virus from an ad. So then in their mind, they're just shut down forever. Right. You're never going to convince that person again that it's a safe medium, um, which is, you know, unfortunate <laughs> as working for a digital, digital market. Like I, I, I really do. As a technologist, I, I, I sympathize with one side, but as a marketer, I, I also want to shake people and just tell them, you know, there has to be a way to find a happy medium because there are economies at stake and there are jobs at stake. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how, how things shake out. And, and it seems like the trend of the new operating systems and the new browsers is more on the side of the consumer because they're the one that they're, they're, are purchasing those goods. Right. So another thing that we're, you know, I, I think I see a lot uh, in the news or, or certainly when vendors kind of reach out and say, we have new technologies to help you reach more customers. There's a lot of conversation about programmatic ad buying, uh, you know, kind of like, I imagine like the stock market is programmatic trading. You know, you've got algorithms that are going to do it for you. What, what do you think that's going to do to the industry or what's your opinion of, of programmatic buying? 
I think you kind of have to start with a definition of what is programmatic. I think it, it, it's, a, it's a term that's used a lot. I think it means different things to different people. Um, I mean, to me, programmatic is anything that's bought automated. So if you're purchasing media through an ad network, who's buying programmatically on your behalf, you're buying programmatically, whether you're doing it directly or you're letting somebody else do it. If you're buying through Google display network, you're uploading creative, you're setting the target that you want. You're using Google algorithms in order to get to that content and you're entering an auction based on what you're willing to bid. You're buying programmatically. You might not have a fancy trade desk that you're using. You're not going to be tapping in personally, tapping into a DSP, but you, you are, um, so I think, you know, even even agencies who may think or, or individuals who may think that they're not technically buying programmatically, I would say you're buying programmatically because you're buying automated. But there's still a strategy involved, the, right? I mean, that, I mean, that's, I think, the, the misnomer about whether it's programmatic ad buying or marketing automation that send emails based on an algorithm. That it's worthless unless you've set up kind of the rules in advance. You have to lay out the playbook and then the machines can do what they want, but there, you know, I think too often it's used as synonymous for I don't need to think about it rather than I'm, I'm setting up these tools to move quicker than I could because I'm in five meetings before lunch. If I notice this threshold set, then make these changes. Right. Yeah. It's not the, who is it? Ron Pupil, the set it and forget, <laughs> set it, and forget it. it. Right. Um, yeah. Your buying is only as good as the data sources that you're using in order to target whoever it is you're trying to target. And not stepping away and taking the human brain out of the whole process. Like there is value of the human brain being a part of the programmatic buying process and not just allowing the technology to 100% control. Um, I do think there's still a gut check and there's still value in having a team that is, that is optimizing the data along with the technology. Right. Well, that's good. Then you and I will both have jobs, at least for a little while longer. <laughs> the machines won't completely Hopefully. take over. Lisa, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with me. I really appreciate your time. I know you're super busy. My pleasure. Uh, I think this has been a really fun conversation, and I can't wait to bring you back again so we can continue it in the future. Uh, but before you go, uh, kind of a tradition at the end of the podcast, we like to tell our listeners about something they can't miss. So what is your recommendation for our listeners about something that they shouldn't miss? Well, I went to Cuba this summer and I highly recommend that if it's on your places to go in your lifetime list that you move it up to the top of the list. I I don't think it's going to change anytime soon. So if you go, you'll probably within the next couple of years, I think you'll still experience the the authentic Cuban culture the way it is now. It's it's so hard to know what's going to happen in the future as things change. But I went to Cuba on the people-to-people visa and had a lot of opportunity to meet with artists, entrepreneurs, professors, farmers, all sorts of people who talk to us specifically about their life in Cuba, everything from their profession to what it's like to go to um, a doctor's office to how you collect your rations each month and going to a ration store. Um, And it was it was so fascinating and the people were just so beautiful. And regardless of how you feel about it politically, and I'm certainly not going to get into that here, um, meeting, meeting the people and learning about a culture that's so different from anything 
that um, we as Americans have experienced is just is always just such a beautiful and blessed experience. And the more you learn about culture, of course, I always feel like that that makes me a, a better person, which of course, you know, I'm sure is all of our goal in life is to, to be the best person that we can be. So um, I highly, highly recommend going there, especially if you can go and have the people to people contact um, the way I was so fortunate to be able to do. It was, it was top of the list of memorable experiences. Wow. Would you say that it was, on, in the rank of the, all the places you've traveled to, because I know you're a big world traveler, uh, where would it fall on your your top ten list? Yeah, it's it's definitely in the top three. It oh, was great. it was really beautiful. Oh, that's fantastic. My mine's going to not be nearly as uh, important as that, but something that I, I am finding joy in this week is the return to television of Stephen Colbert uh, in Late Night, whose voice I think uh, is just really smart really warm and engaging, really intelligent and funny and human. And uh, I think it's been really interesting to see him kind of drop his persona uh, as the blowhard and show the heart that he has back on TV. And so it's 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 not not as cool as traveling someplace else, but it, it warms my heart that he's back and uh, back in, in the landscape and, and making the world a better place, because I think he really does. So that's going to do it for Inside Situation this week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, please keep sending us email and feedback at podcast at situation.nyc. We love reading all of your, your questions and comments, and we will be doing an upcoming podcast that is based around those questions. So please make sure to keep sending those in, and we will be bringing that to you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lisa, and everyone have a great couple of weeks. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.